please open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 12. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, your, your word is perfect and great and such a good and gentle gift for us. Father, we pray that you would illumine it for our, our eyes, our minds, our hearts, throughout our bodies and our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. The Hebrew word here translated, as Solomon writes, as preacher in most Bibles, is Kohelet. And comes to us from Greek and Latin as Ecclesiastes. Kohelet is a title meaning one that gathers in the sense of gathering and assembly. And so you can see how preacher works. Recall 1 Kings 8, 54 through 56 and a number of other accounts of Solomon calling the assembly of Israel together. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people, Israel. According to all that he promised, there has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. But an undercurrent in Ecclesiastes, as we know from 1 Kings 4, the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon was very much a gatherer and arranger of Proverbs as well, assembled for the instruction of the people who would assemble. But here in Ecclesiastes, we will see the gatherer in the struggle of a lifetime to arrange 
these pieces to make sense of life in a fallen world. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, what is this? Immediately, we are pulled into the preacher's struggle, engaged along with him. This bullet between the eyes has been described with much colorful language among the commentators. A couple of examples. To Charles Bridges, it is a forcible impression and a vehement exclamation as if overwhelmed with his own perception of it. To David Gibson, it is simply shock tactics, as if it's time to wake up and, in his words, stop playing pretend with life and demolishing our pretense by confronting us with reality. Derek Kidner compares this to Job's wisdom literature and finds himself virtually bombarded by Kohelet. With no Job-like prologue to let us into any secrets, no dialogue to balance one point of view against another, and no answering voice from heaven, we take the full force of the opening salvo and again as a parting shot in chapter 12. They say that the first thing that a trial jury hears and the last thing a jury hears are the most likely to be remembered. The concepts of primacy, the first, and recency, the last. And as bookends, it makes common sense. It's easy to see how those positions, the first and the last, carry a weight all their own. And so Solomon begins and ends his book all the way in 12.8 in the same fashion, with vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And I'm willing to bet that for most of us, vanity of vanities is the first thing you remember when you think of Ecclesiastes. But just a hint, don't take this to mean that Solomon learned nothing between chapters 1 through 12. Vanity of vanities is not his end of the matter. And if you're one of those that likes to Skip ahead to the last chapter or last page of a book to read the ending. Have at it. But the wise man is on a journey. It's best to engage with him in it for all 12 chapters. The Hebrew language expresses a superlative just like this. So vanity of vanities means utter vanity. Another example, the holy of holies means the holiest place. Take a right turn over to the Song of Solomon. What is it also known as? The Song of Songs, the best song. The Hebrew word here translated vanity is habel. It appears 38 times in Ecclesiastes. The literal meaning of habel is a breath or vapor, as in Isaiah 57:13. When you cry out, let your collection of idols save you, but the wind will carry them all up. And a breath, Habel, will take them away, but the one who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And we know when a breath is gone, it's gone. When a vapor arrives on the scene, it diffuses in a moment. But here, with Habel used metaphorically for everything in this world, we understand what is conveyed in this context is a brevity, a futility, an insubstantiality, a frailty. 
Consider the metaphorical use in Psalm 39, 5, and 6. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly, every man at his best state is but vapor. Havel. Selah. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. Havel. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. Now remember our reading of the law, particularly Romans 8, 19 through 21. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. This is creation made good by the good God and then made futile by the God who cursed it, the creator himself. But we see in Romans 8 there is redemption with hope in Christ of deliverance for both the creation and the Christian Ecclesiastes 4.6 reads, Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. To David Gibson, this is a contradiction to the, I think, to the idea that things are utterly lost. Because if something could be better, then not everything has no value. A clue to how we should be living in a world subjected to futility, although not utterly so. Craig Bartholomew translates, and don't think I don't say this with some trepidation, but all the commentators agree that there is an element of mystery. Most all. He translates verse 2 as enigmatic, utterly enigmatic. Everything is enigmatic. Habel as mystery. Have you ever prayed? What are you doing? Not not shaking your fist at the heavens. Just God, show me, clue me in. Because things do not add up or produce the intended results. That is life under the sun. It's a life lived in mystery with much we don't understand. Bartholomew's translation suggests that all cannot be grasped or controlled physically, as with the breeze or the vapor, but it also suggests Hebel, in this context, should also be understood as that which cannot be intellectually grasped or comprehended. Turn to John 3, 1 through 12. Particularly with verse 8, and hear the mystery. And a wise man, a teacher of Israel, that was befuddled. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? 
can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Matthew Henry writes on John 3, 8, and listen for key words of mystery, and then I'll summarize. The same word pneuma signifies both the wind and the spirit. This comparison is here used to show, firstly, that the spirit in regeneration works arbitrarily and as a free agent. The wind bloweth and does not attend our order, nor is subject to our command. God directs it. It fulfills his word. The spirit dispenses his influences where and when, on whom and in what measure and degree he pleases, dividing to every man severally as he will. And secondly, that he works powerfully and with evident effects. Thou hearest the sound thereof, though its causes are hidden. Its effects are manifest. When the soul is brought to mourn for sin, to groan under the burden of corruption, to breathe after Christ, to cry, Abba, Father, then we hear the sound of the Spirit. We find he is at work. And Henry says, thirdly, and he works mysteriously and in secret, hidden ways. Thou canst not tell whence it comes nor whither it goes, how it gathers and how it spends its strength. It is a riddle to us. So the manner and method of the Spirit's working are a mystery. In summary, we are not in command. We see God's powerful effects under the sun, but not its hidden causes. And his working is hidden in that we don't know all that he was doing before or will do after. And we see mystery played out even in Ecclesiastes 9.11, if you want to turn there. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift. What a mystery. Nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all. Now, this is not Solomon falling to the worldly error that there is some almighty force with a capital C. A force apart from the one true God and even angels and men, chance, randomly causing things to play out, such as Lady Luck. But this small C to Solomon is but the works of God in and out of time, executing his decrees in ways necessarily enigmatic to man. 
who sees God's works imperfectly. But when we're no longer hidebound, so to speak, we will see. 1 Corinthians 13:12. For now we see in a mirror, dimly but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. And Henry wrote of this verse, Now we can only discern things at a great distance, as through a telescope. And that involved in clouds and obscurity. But hereafter, the things will, to be known will be near and obvious, open to our eyes, and our knowledge will be free from all obscurity and error. So borrowing Henry's telescope analogy, we know this is why bird watchers do not use telescopes. They use binoculars. A telescope would only reveal a feather or two of the bird. But binoculars let you take in the whole picture and clearly identify and understand the bird. Well, we do not have a binocular view now. We have only what our telescope shows right in front of our face. And that's not much. We must grasp that for now, God's works will be shrouded in mystery. Our only recourse then is to trust in his nature and in his ways. We know what those are. They're plainly revealed in his word. And those ways, the actions of the one good God are trustworthy because he cannot lie. So let us walk in faith, not by sight, not by trusting the testimony of our eyes in dealing with mystery. The question in verse 3, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Under the sun is the qualifier that runs the length of Ecclesiastes when our lives between birth and death play out, now, in time, as long as the earth lasts under the sun. In 1.3 and all the way through 2.23, Solomon lays out the conundrum crying out for a solution to our lives lived under the sun. Specifically, it's an existence encompassed by the long shadow cast by death. Solomon would learn in the school of life that the answer is not ultimately found in the pleasures, pursuits, riches of this world. Not even Solomon had to confess in wisdom. As to verse 3, commentator Charles Bridges quotes Matthew 16, 26. Question, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Matthew 16, 26 For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Bridges said the man in the world, that means really in the world, may be orthodox in his creed and moral in his practice, but he has stumbled at the very threshold. He's placed the world before God, the body before the soul, time before eternity. David Gibson defines wisdom literature, biblical or otherwise, in that it specializes in implicit and indirect answers to life's questions. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, some of the Psalms I I hear, Song of Solomon, they mix the bold pronouncement of verse 2, vanity of vanities, with less clear analogies and pictorial representations, as we'll see in verses 4 to 8, part of the answer. 
All biblical wisdom literature proposes to answer the question, what does it mean to fear the Lord while living in an overturned creation once called good, but now run off the rails at the behest of the creator? The phrase under the sun occurs in the Old Old Testament only in Ecclesiastes, and it sets the stage for the question, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? The answer is found in verses 4 through 11. But of course, being wisdom literature, it's indirect and even unfulfilling. And there's an irony, isn't there, in questioning the value of labor. After all, Ecclesiastes is about Solomon's whole human life and its meaning lived under the sun. The irony is in questioning the value of labor when Ecclesiastes logs the at times frantic and sinful labor of a man laboring to find out if there's value in labor and a whole world of other things. And in chapter 2, Solomon embarks on a labor that must have lasted most of his life called the Royal Experiment, in which he very scientifically measures out the riches, treasures, knowledges, grand pursuits, to see if the sheer weight of them would outweigh the scales of vanity or penetrate the mystery. So make sure a Bible's open on your lap as we go on to the answer. And stop to really hear the poem of verses 2 through 11 and Solomon's answer in 4 through 11 to the question of verse 3. The generations gone by coming and going and coming, the seeming permanence of the earth in contrast. But the earth changing, flushed in sunlight, darkness, sunlight, darkness, the heat from that very sun moving the winds about from here to there and here again, never ceasing in their circuit, the water cycle filling but never overflowing, oceans never full but the rivers never emptied, Man's labor never complete, and speech doesn't fill the void. His eyes seeing but never filled with visions, and his ears full of even, never full of even musical instruments, love songs, tender words spoken in kindness, the terrifying rumblings of thunder, right on down to a baby's curious cooing. The answer in verse 4. One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after 
The focus of the answer in this poem on labor and life is at its center in verse 8, because as Bartholomew argues convincingly, this poem uses a chiastic literary device. A chiasmus relates two clauses or sentences to one another by reversing their grammatical structures. And only my wife knows I have no idea what I'm talking about because I hate grammar. So let's do it this way. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The chiasmus here, we will see, spans the entire answer in verses 4 through 11 to the question of verse 3. Putting the dead center and main point at the first clause in verse 8. But the ESV and New American Standard are preferred for, for verse 8 because it is not apparent, frankly, what the New King James means by all things are full of labor. We have good days at work. We have bad days at work. They read, all things are full of weariness. To see why weariness is the answer to, question, to the question in verse 3, start at the edges of the chiasmus, verses 4 and 11. Verses 4, generations come and go, but the earth remains. And since they come and go, verse 11, there's no remembrance of people. They're gone. Move inward from there. Verses 5 and 6 and 9 and 10 playing off of those. Verses 5 and 6, the endless circular repetition of nature. And so, in verse 9 through 10, it's circular. There's nothing new under the sun in all of history. It's all been done before. To the center on verses, in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, just as the sea is never full, so in verse 8, the eye and the ear are never satisfied. So look at the dead center for the answer in the first clause of verse 8. That all labor is full of weariness. Because it's without, expand back out to what the, pro, the, the poem just said. It's without physical gain here. We're on, you know, the never-ending rinse cycle under the sun. Imagine Kohelet stuck on the chain gang, cracking rocks all day long to make smaller rocks and cracking those to make smaller rocks. And don't we know that the weariest labor, we've all been there, perhaps this week, is that that seems to have no point never accomplishing anything unsatisfying and breaking rocks under the sun all day long. Solomon saw the earth going on and on while men and women fade until their death. And the earth swallows them itself, lost in the dust. Charles Bridges says, as compared with man, the earth seems to abide forever. Michael Eaton notes this poem shows that the activity of creation, though a hubbub of activity, is devoid of progress. And so there is no gain for creation that seems to endure, just as there's no gain for men living in it. David Gibson matches the patterns of the world with human experience. The cyclical, nonlinear patterns of the poem are the same whether in creations, threefold activities of the sun, wind, and water, or in the threefold activities of men in speaking, seeing, and hearing. There is no satisfaction. Solomon longed to see something new, and so it is significant that at this time in chapter 1, he only reported on 
those endless repeating cycles with nothing physical to gain and death around the corner or perhaps over the horizon, after which you would not even be remembered. And Gibson says, you can kind of see Solomon's point. We've been to the moon now, but isn't it really just more exploration? A new government, but isn't it really just another government? And we've created communication devices and computers, but don't they just allow us to do what we were already doing before faster? We might have been doing it better before. I've hinted at the eventual answer in Ecclesiastes, but a study of Ecclesiastes needs to go along with Kohelet to pace itself, go along with Solomon from his initial frustrations to his spiritual revelations. But understand that the faithful Hebrew did not see history as a cycle, endlessly repeating, but instead linearly progressing along the line of God's plan and governance, but admittedly with the very same obvious cycles recurring in creation and among us, as Solomon saw, yet always moving to a conclusion, to an eternity, I should say. The new things the faithful of Israel waited for were tied to the promises of God to his people. And today, the Christian likewise hopes in the coming day of our Lord. There is a strain of commentators who believe the preacher is intentionally presenting a pessimistic viewpoint in Ecclesiastes, something only true of a life, a breath, or vapor lived without God, in order to argue that life is best lived with God. But I stand with commentator David Gibson and others because to take solely the pessimistic approach to Ecclesiastes is to ignore that we Christians, too, have, have to live in this cursed time under the sun, a time filled with seemingly endless repetitions, cycles of pain, suffering, and, of course, death. But, of course, for the Christian, we know that those suffering cycles are of no eternal significance except in how they are gained to the inward soul for all of eternity. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction is but for a moment. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So say along with me that it is good that our lives are a breath now, but then gone. God has not taken his people out of a cursed creation, but has shored us up with our helper, the Holy Spirit, here amid these endless cycles and vanities of vanity. So prepare for death. To that end, how do we see the world and our place in it? Where and when do we place our identity? In time or in eternity? 
It is God who controls time and small c chance. Let us stop grasping at vapors and live lives of significance to God. Too often we act as if we are our own providers, don't we? Like we are the good father himself bestowing this world's good gifts, seemingly good gifts, on ourselves. Rather than waiting patiently and silently for his good provision in his good time. When I was 10 or 11, I uh, asked for a handheld electronic pinball game for Christmas. And approximately three three weeks before Christmas, I went into my parents' closet and lo and behold, found it. Immediately got it out of the box when they weren't looking and played it. And I got really good at it in the next three weeks when they were out of the house. So Christmas morning, I opened the present, feigned surprise, lying, basically, and plug it in and start playing it and running up the score. And after a couple minutes, my brother turns to my dad and says, wow, he's really good at it. It's easy to think we're really good at the gifts we're making for ourselves in the world. But there was no hollower Christmas than that one. We need to remember to stay out of our Father's closet. He gave us prayer and the Holy Spirit. He gave us Christian fellowship. That should be enough. When we live stressed out lives over broken or breaking relationships or trying to make ends meet, rather than seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6.33, we tell our Father, thanks but no thanks, too focused on gain to spend it on ourselves in creation, not in a creation not even allowing for physical gain within its bounds. See that Christ's good gift, the one we didn't even ask for, permits our souls to gain even now. Now your response may be, wait a minute, no physical gain here under the sun. What about my wife, my children, a job I do love, good fellowship with friends, wine and moderation, music and church? Yeah, you're right. You do actually enjoy those as good gifts from the Father. And they benefit you under the sun, but ultimately only because they are pointers to eternity, pointing the way to our heavenly home a new heaven and a new earth. Along with the eternal city of Revelation 21:23, where the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminates it, and the Lamb is its light. So in conclusion, keep Kohelet close. Here is frustration, because the reality is that death is coming, And it's just over the horizon. Will we run from death trying to create lives of permanence here, idolizing change in those cycles of a cursed world, seeking to exert control of the terms of our exit? Or will we accept that death is coming on and that we are only pilgrims within these repeating cycles while ever going home? Since life is a breath Let's make good use of our momentary time under the sun to the glory of God, holding out the hope along with Solomon 
that our struggle will find a spiritual resolution in the good and determined plan of our loving Heavenly Father and Creator. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the good gift of your word. We thank you that you could see plainly that we needed it. We needed to hear from you and what a loving father to communicate with us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Amen.